0: I thought I'd just, just kind of remind us of where we've got to. So our overall theme is a contemplative Christianity for our time. And this morning, I the talk was called Religionless Christianity in a Secular Age. And I was, in a sense, seeking to position Christianity in relation to the secularising dynamic of our culture and our time. And talking about the need to discern the difference between a concern just to shore up our team, as it were, to kind of push back the tide, distinguishing between that, which is a kind of defensive, um, rivalistic kind of response, from asking whether there is something, some reality to which this tradition seeks to testify, to enable access, and that we're still called to remain true to. And so this afternoon, I'm wanting to begin engaging this question of what it is we're called to remain true to. And this brings us back to the issue I focused on a little bit more last night, which was the relationship between contemplation and Christianity, or between our, com- our contemplative practice and our Christian faith. And this talk is called Jesus the Christ. Well, ever since I accepted the invitation to give this John Maine seminar, I've known that this third talk needed to focus on Jesus. And it's terrified me. (laughs) Because at the centre of all we're exploring lies a mystery so dense that it sometimes feels impenetrable, or so deep that it sometimes feels like a lacuna, an empty space. What is there to say at this point? And who am I daring to attempt to say it? Especially since Jesus has not, so to speak, come naturally to me in the life of faith. When I was growing up in the church, I never really had a strong sense, as as some do, of the presence or livingness of Jesus in my life. I struggled with the question of how a man dying in painful circumstances over 2,000 years ago makes a difference to our life today. And I always felt vaguely uneasy and inauthentic when people spoke of encountering the risen Christ and of the difference he'd made in them. For me, it wasn't that real. And even when I believed myself called to ordination, After a long and winding journey in and out of the church, Jesus was still problematic. In fact, I remember saying to someone, it's just this teensy problem. (laughs) (laughs) What really did it mean to know him or love him or dwell in him? To proclaim that because of him, the possibilities for human being, and indeed the whole creation, have decisively and comprehensively transformed. What did it mean, in short, to be Christian? And though I find myself living now in a different way with these perplexities, approaching the question of Christ still feels daunting always a little beyond me, like drawing near to holy ground, which I guess is how it should be. So in what follows, I make no claim to particular Christological originality or expertise. I hope simply to share something of my own attempts to make sense of how Jesus, how knowing Jesus, might be connected to our contemplative practice and the journey of transformation. I'm interested in the question of who Christ is for us and how it might matter to live as his disciples now. So I want to start with the question of approach. You'll remember that when Moses glimpsed the strange sight of a bush burning, while keeping his flock at the far side of the wilderness and knew that he must turn aside to see it, God called to him out of the bush, telling him to, quote, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I've been wondering what it might mean for us to take off our shoes as we turn aside to see, to seek to know more deeply the person and meaning of Jesus the Christ. From as far back as we can go in our tradition, the ways in which Jesus was spoken of displayed what Rowan Williams calls exceptional linguistic eccentricity. (laughs) Typically Rowan kind of uh, understatement. It's weird in other ways. On the one hand, Jesus is described as having said and done things as a finite historical agent, a human subject, among others. He gathered a group of followers with whom he walked the roads of Judea and Galilee. He shared meals with his companions, taught in parables and performed certain kinds of cure. He got tired and wept. He was handed over to hostile authorities to suffer and be killed. On the other hand, this same Jesus is described by the New Testament in language that goes far beyond any normally ascribed to a human being. He is called the Christ, the anointed, said to be alive on the other side of death and still active in the world as God's word of judgment and restoration. He is no longer simply a finite historical individual, but is transpersonal. St Paul writes of believers being in Christ and of Christ being alive in them. His agency continues in and through the body of believers of whom he is said to be the head. And what this agency, what his action in the world effects, goes far beyond what a mere human being might accomplish. Where Christ's activity is recognised, Williams writes, there is new creation. His presence is associated with an entirely new frame of reference for perceiving human agency and human hope. Well, for me, the effect of such linguistic oddity, such strangeness, was always to provoke some pretty sharp questions, such as, who says? (laughs) How are such ways of speaking justified? What on earth is being said? Why should I believe it? Natural enough queries and not in and of themselves inappropriate. But what matters in the first instance is the manner of their asking. Because asked primarily in an impatient or sceptical spirit, I've realised they represent a failure on my part to take off my shoes. They tacitly assume that I can attain an understanding of Jesus and the words of proclamation according to my pre-existing categories of explanation. But this is precisely what I cannot do if Christ is who Christ is claimed to be. For if he is indeed God with us, God breaking into creaturely life in some radical new sense then his presence and action in the world break open the very categories with which I might try to think or explain him. Which is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that in the face of this divine word, there is no longer any possibility of incorporating him into the order of our own reason or logos. We cannot legitimately ask, how are you possible? There is, in fact, says Bonhoeffer, only one question left. Who are you? And what's significant, I think, about the question, who are you, is that it is a shoe-removing question. It expresses humility and evokes vulnerability in the one who asks it. Like the question Jesus encouraged his disciples to ask themselves, who do you say that I am? It's seriously self implicating. That's because if I ask, who are you? I render myself open to the claim of the other, their being. As I wait for a response, Maybe I become aware of my impulse to impose my own answer, to to tell him who he is, (laughs) or to foreclose listening as I struggle to comprehend the other's meaning or fear to trust what is given. The question who necessarily calls forth the willingness not to know the vulnerability of live encounter. And if I think back to my own earlier struggle to get Jesus, what I realise is my impatience and my resistance to being vulnerable to the question itself. And perhaps this is one of the difficulties for our culture more generally today. Purportedly, I wanted to understand, but I actually, I wanted to stand over, not under. I wanted to master truth once and for all and then get on with life on my terms. To be clear, I'm not saying that seeking to know who Jesus is requires giving up critical thought or responsibility for being truthful. It's not that we just, ah. <laughs> I am saying, however, that the nature, the seat of our critical engagement must fundamentally shift. And Father Lawrence has put it beautifully in his book, Jesus, the Teacher Within. Jesus is not there in history just to be looked at, examined and judged. He is not here only to be observed to be seen with the eyes of the body or the mind. He is to be known in relationship, known with the eye of the heart. And he goes on, when he is seen just as an object of scholarship or historical analysis, the perceptive faculty of faith is lost. When we coldly objectify Jesus, we miss our appointment with him. The gospel narratives insist time and again that there's a necessary relationship between coming to recognise or know Jesus and undergoing some shift in your perceptual capacity. Sometimes it sounds as though this shift comes out of the blue, and arrives as sheer gift. Jesus responds to Simon Peter's apparently sudden insight, "You are the Messiah." the son of the living God, by saying, you are favoured indeed. You did not learn that from mortal man. It was revealed to you by my heavenly father. At other times, this perceptual shift, this capacity to recognise, seems connected to a, more to a process of conversion and deepened seeing that happens over time. Think of some of the resurrection narratives which emphasise the time it took for Mary Magdalene in the garden or the disciples on the road to Emmaus to recognise the presence of the risen Lord. Some pre-existing way of seeing and being must be let go. Some period of confusion or unknowing undergone before the dawning of new insight and the emergence of new or renewed relationship and call. And this dynamic conversion is even more dramatically represented in a story like the conversion of Saul, for example. The tradition insists, in other words, that encountering Jesus always takes us beyond what we thought we knew about him and ourselves. It shifts our sense of the meaning and possibilities of human life and our vocation in the world. Bonhoeffer saw this process of going beyond what we thought we knew as deeply confronting. He speaks of encounter with Jesus as requiring the death of our own logos, that is, of our human way of mapping reality from our own standpoint, of seeing it according to these pre-existing categories. Coming to know Jesus is itself a Paschal journey. So this next part is called Jesus and the Transformation of Consciousness. At some level, and the levels vary, this Pascal dynamic is evident in any process of human transformation and expansion of consciousness. We see it enacted in classic myths, and initiation rites the world over. And much contemporary literature on transitions and organizational change also recognizes just this threefold pattern. William Bridges, for example, identifies the stages of major life transition as beginning with an ending, going through the neutral zone, and ending with a new beginning, which arrives, so it seems, from the future as a gift. Likewise, some of you might be familiar with Otto Sharma's Theory U, which traces a trajectory from a movement of descent involving suspending, redirecting, and letting go past patterns, to a middle, bottomed out, questing space, he calls presencing, to an ascending, emerging movement of letting come, enacting, and embodying. So it's the same Paschal descent. The transforming effect on human consciousness of the practice of meditation may be understood in the same kinds of terms as involving the same kind of dynamic. There's the movement of kenosis or self-emptying, letting go thoughts, habits of mind, existing conceptions of the self. Then there's the willingness to wait in the place of unknowing, the cloud of forgetting beneath us and the cloud of unknowing above us, as the 14th century author puts it. And then there's the emergence of new vision or insight, a fuller integration and harmonization of the self, which involves a new freedom to be and a renewed sense of belonging to the whole. What's actually happening psychologically, neurologically, spiritually, as this process unfolds, can be described in a variety of ways. Cynthia Bourgeau, for example, speaks of the practice of meditation, enabling a shift in our consciousness from what she calls an exclusively egoic operating system, which is binary or dualistic, to a non-dual or unitive system which she says is the operating system of the heart. By letting go established patterns and habits of mind, a new way of perceiving, thinking, and experiencing reality becomes available. And she notes, unlike the egoic operating system, the heart does not perceive through differentiation. It doesn't divide the field into inside and out, subject and object, Rather, it perceives by means of harmony. When heart awareness becomes fully formed within a person, he or she will be operating out of non-dual consciousness. In a slightly different idiom, English writer Maggie Ross speaks of the same kind of journey process of transformation, though she doesn't like the word transformation. But she speaks of a shift between self-conscious mind and deep mind, which goes necessarily through this liminal space of unknowing. There's a breaking open of a limited, self-dramatizing and disconnected intelligence to the transfiguring light of what she calls the deep mind's holographic relational world of direct perception. And differently again, Thomas Merton talks in terms of awakening to our true self beyond what he calls the false self or the contingent ego self, which separates us from ourselves and from God and from other people. But what seems consistent in all these different ways of speaking, these different descriptions of this journey of transformation (coughs) is first A recognition that human consciousness may be transformed from being and perceiving in limited, self-enclosed and dualistic ways to being and perceiving in larger, more direct and unitive ways. And second, that the process of this transformation is by way of a descent or a death, dying into life. But this brings us to the heart of our inquiry. So if you're kind of nodding, just kind of make an effort here. (laughs) This, This brings us to the heart of our inquiry. I've suggested already that coming to know Jesus involves our undergoing a transformation of consciousness. It's also clear from the testimony of the Gospels that Jesus has made this kind of journey himself, or at least that his life incarnates its fruits. He is an awakened person. He's fully conscious of being at one with the source of all life, perceiving reality holistically, directly. He's thus clearly a paradigm of the possibility of awakening in human beings, and a teacher who seeks to point his disciples in the way of it. He's wanting to communicate it. For Christian writers, it's thus entirely natural that our contemplative pilgrimage towards this same unitive consciousness is described in terms of his as an Enchristing journey as some write we put on the mind of Christ we come to share his same way of perceiving relating to reality and it said we do this as we consent to let go of self-sufficient self-limiting grasping habits of heart and mind and be opened to a larger more generous transfiguring reality this is the meditation journey Jesus is thus readily understood as teacher, guide and exemplar of the process of transformation. But the question is, is he necessary for our participation in it, our realisation of it? We can certainly describe the journey of transformation and the fruit of our contemplative practice by way of Christian metaphors and images. But do we need Jesus really for this transformation to be effected in us? Once we know the process, once we know the way we are to practice, what does knowing Jesus add to our capacity to make the journey? Why can't we just meditate? (laughs) Well, in his correspondence with the Christian community at Corinth, St. Paul has an endearing turn of phrase. On three separate occasions, he's thundering along, giving his views on various matters, as Paul is wont to do, when he interrupts himself to remind his hearers, this is I, Paul, who is speaking and not the Lord. (laughs) It's a kind of added health warning. He's giving up any implicit claim to infallibility or divine license and giving express permission for his readers to make up their own minds about what he's saying. And though, of course, you know that everything I've been saying is I, Sarah, and not the Lord, I feel the need, particularly at this point, to stress the invitation to shared discernment of what I'm seeking to explore. So I've described the process of human transformation in general, in terms of death and resurrection, as involving a descent into unknowing and liminality, where we must wait on what is given. And the question I've asked is, do we need Jesus? Do we need to be in relationship with him to make this journey? What is the difference he is supposed to make? Well, here's a go at a response. It's generally agreed that the breakthrough from dualistic to unitive consciousness Or from self-conscious to deep mind, from alienation to reconciliation, is not something we can make happen. Liminality is as far as self-consciousness can go, says Maggie Ross. So the best we can do is get ourselves into that let go space. The moment of contemplation is gift grace. The capacity to receive this gift is, however, directly related to the extent to which we are yielded, or consent to be handed over in unknowing, non-grasping, self-dispossession. The whole point of meditation is, as we know, to enable and enact this. It's clear we can make considerable progress, if that's not an oxymoron, through dedicated practice. But it seems to me that there comes a point where we, where I, can go no further. I cannot let go enough. I cannot out of my own resources, give myself wholly over. I may yearn and yearn to yield myself to God without remainder, but I cannot get past myself. And it's here, at the point of my very failure to be truly poor in spirit, which is its own kind of poverty, that something else must happen. Some grace must be given if I am truly to break through. In the Christian vision, what happens at this point is Christ. Christ is the one who comes for me, who leads me out beyond myself. who liberates me for fullest life. Christ is the one who gave himself to be where we are so we might come to be where he is. Bonhoeffer writes, He stands on the boundary of my existence, beyond my existence, but still for me. This expresses the fact that I am separated from the I that I should be by a boundary which I am unable to cross. This boundary lies between me and myself, between the old I and the new I. Our tradition testifies that this initiative of reconciliation in Christ comes as sheer gift to a humanity that does not even know how alienated it is from itself. When we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory, says one of the post-Eucharistic prayers. This advent, this divine crossing of the boundary of our existence to enable our total self-entrustment manifests in different ways. Simone Weil's spiritual autobiography tells of her practice of reciting the poem Love by George Herbert, often at the culminating point of a violent headache, Concentrating, she says, all my attention upon it and clinging with all my soul to the tenderness it enshrines. I used to think, she writes, that I was merely reciting it as a beautiful poem. But without my knowing it, the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that Christ himself came down and took possession of me. They said she had never foreseen the possibility of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. She had vaguely heard of such things but had never believed them. And she's clear that she didn't just dream it up. In this sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. John Main speaks of a much slower, less dramatic process of engrafting our human consciousness on the root that is Christ. Quote, The openness of Jesus' human consciousness to the Father allows us to realise union with the Father also, through him, in our human consciousness. With him, in him, we travel beyond ourselves, through him, into the heart of God. Maine describes this journey to unitive consciousness as a lot like breaking through the sound barrier. There can be turbulence. Courage is needed to persevere. But it is the love of Jesus, recognised or not, that takes us through. The foundation of the whole Christian mystery, he writes, is that the Passover has been accomplished. It is achieved in Jesus and it is his courage, His faithfulness and His love that take us into the infinite expansion that is God. At one level, of course, these testimonies prove little. We may still find ourselves unable to make anything of them or to connect them to our experience and they explain nothing. They don't tell us how this Passover is accomplished. But the essential claim is that there comes a point in the human journey of transformation where we can go no further on our own. And it's here that Christianity holds, and I too believe, that God comes to us. God becomes, as Julian of Norwich put it, the ground of our beseeching. God in Christ is the presence in and for us of resurrection and reconciliation. Made receptive by our stillness and silence, We are met in our poverty and our unyielding. And some blockage begins to be dissolved. A boundary crossed. Some new way of being human becomes subtly and slowly available. We cannot ask, how is this possible? We cannot explain or master it. We can only undergo it and find ourselves inhabiting our lives and our world in a different way. And that is the difference Jesus makes. Well, this picture of what enables our transformation at the deepest level has implications for how we locate meditation in the Christian tradition and where we conceive of it leading. And I want particularly to touch on two aspects. First, meditating in the Christian tradition implies a relationship between faith and practice. I said yesterday and we say all the time when we're teaching meditation in the world community, that this is a universal spiritual practice, part of the wisdom of humankind. You don't need to have any particular faith to start meditating, and there are no preconditions or demands. And with this, I wholly agree. At the same time, from a Christian perspective, faith and practice are significantly mutually deepening. The discipline of interior stillness and silence purifies our attention and awakens the heart, that deeper perception and receptivity which opens us to God. In this way, practice enlivens faith. But in turn, our faith-filled sense of the trustworthiness of that to which we are handed over affects how deeply we're able to yield ourselves to the practice. In other words, in the Christian tradition, meditation is relational. We're not just letting go our thoughts but over time we may come to realise we're doing so in response to a call. And here the story of Jesus makes a real difference. If we think of his practice of welcome, his acceptance of those who failed, rejected or betrayed him, his Generous desire that all should live and his radical acceptance. All this communicates the nature of God as unconditionally for us, on our side, as seeking us out and wanting our company. It's a story. Again, in Rowan Williams' words, which makes possible the comprehensive act of trust without which growth is impossible. Who's going to yield themselves wholeheartedly to an untrustworthy reality? (laughs) Ultimately, it's true, maturing in faith means growing beyond purely devotional religiosity, relating to Jesus as an object external to us. Maturity is about coming into union, the transformation of our consciousness. But our access to union means letting ourselves go at deeper and deeper levels of our being. And for that, most of us need help. And again, Lawrence has put it this way. Our coming to share in Jesus' communion with the Father requires us to transcend dualism, our ego-based relationship with him and to begin to participate in his consciousness. But this can only happen as we learn to trust and entrust ourselves by the grace of relationship with him as we discover ourselves loved and freed to be. And this suggests, says Father Lawrence, we need duality in order to transcend duality. We need the historical Jesus to reach the cosmic Christ. In Christian meditation, there's a relationship between faith and practice. And the second feature of practising meditation in this tradition that I want to highlight is to do with the shape of our transformation. In the Christian vision, the gift Christ gives is the possibility of our becoming fully human. And to be fully human means to be like him, to be recreated in the image of his humanity. This means not only that we do the same things he did or love one another as he loved us. It means that we participate in his relationship to the one he calls Abba, Father. Paul speaks of our becoming children of God by adoption. John's Jesus prays that as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Williams describes this, this filial relationship of Jesus to the Father as a relationship of loving and adoring, self giving, a pouring out of life towards the other that brings not death but life to the self. For us to be human as he is human is to share in that same delighted reciprocity, to be open to all the fullness that God wishes to pour into our hearts. This sounds abstract, but an image that helps focus it for me is offered by the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. He, He talks a bit about resurrection and the lived experience of redemption. And he wrote that redemption is an experience of no longer supporting yourself on this earth, but suspending yourself from heaven. (laughs) It's true, he says, that someone who is suspended looks like someone who is standing, but the interplay of forces within him is nevertheless a quite different one, and hence he is able to do quite different things than the one who stands. A shift from self-supporting being suspended. So Wittgenstein realises, in other words, that faith is not first and foremost about propositional belief, but about trust. It's to do with our experience of its capacity to take our weight, and so to make it possible for us to do quite different things. The notion of being suspended suggests being held in being beyond our self-securing identities. Who we are does not terminate in ourselves. Life can be experienced as a continuous trusting receptivity and responsiveness to what is being given. Think of that filial relationship again, Jesus to the Father. And it's this sense of continuous receptivity and responsiveness to what is being given that enables a radical unthreatenedness in our whole way of life. So what I've sought to suggest so far is something of how Jesus relates to the contemplative journey of transformation. Meditation, I've said, is a universal practice. But meditating in the Christian tradition involves a particular understanding of the relationship between faith and practice and a particular understanding of what it means to be contemplatively transformed, to become fully human as Christ is fully human. Yet this leads, finally, to one last question for today. The question, what's in a name? Is it only Jesus who can make this kind of difference? How much is at stake in being able explicitly to confess Christian faith or not? Well, I'm not going to attempt anything like a comprehensive response. You'll be pleased to know. (laughs) But I want to suggest three touchstones that orient my continuing reflection on the notion of a contemplative Christianity. First, Jesus is not in rivalry with anything in the world. He doesn't come to establish a religion in competition with other religious systems, but to communicate a distinctive way of being human. Is trusting receptivity. Disciples are those who recognise him as their teacher, who find themselves drawn to follow him. We discover the truth of his way in the living of it. As our relationship with him transforms our egoic identity and as the underlying agency of God begins to break through in our lives. But the truth of Christ, says Bonhoeffer, is not an argument from outside about the relative merits of religions. It's not our job to compare Christ with other religious systems or to compete with them on his behalf, or to find it necessary to justify the Christian worldview as superior or exclusively true we can only live it and our lives will make manifest its truthfulness and capacity to lead us into truth or they won't second and relatedly the jesus of the gospel seems much more concerned that people participate in the generous and loving dynamic of divine life than with evoking their overt or external professions of allegiance. The obvious texts are Matthew 25, where what matters at the last judgment are whether the hungry were fed, the, ne- the sick tended, the naked clothed, and strangers welcomed, than that such things were done explicitly for or in the name of Christ. And similarly, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And yet, and this is my third touchstone, the tradition teaches, and we know from our own experience, that naming matters. I've heard there's a Chinese proverb, the beginning of truth is to call things by their right names. Being named or recognized rightly matters profoundly for our own sense of identity and meaning. Think what it's like when you're not recognized. I have called you by name, you are mine, declares the Lord in the words of the prophet Isaiah. And note the connection here between being given a name and given a vocation. Moreover, naming things, is, naming things truly is internal to the possibility of deepening our relationship with them. You think of how the inability or the unwillingness to name certain of our emotions or to name aspects of the past inhibits the possibilities of growth and maturation. In the imagination of our tradition then, growth in relationship with God is connected with learning God's name. When Moses receives his commission at the burning bush, he asks for and is given the name. And think of Paul crying out in his blindness and confusion on the road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? And hearing in response, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So naming matters. And in my own experience, learning to be able to say the name Jesus without feeling totally weird and cringeworthy, (laughs) sensing the possibility of relationship with this person and with the community that bears his name, well, more and more that seems internally connected to the fuller realisation of my own humanity and my vocation in the world. And I think this might be true for our Christian meditation community as well. The fundamental question that's animated our reflections so far is to do with what our Christianity adds to our contemplative practice and the vocation of our contemplative community. Why can't we just meditate? Well, I think we can just meditate and it will transform us. But what I've sought to explore in this talk is how meditating in the company of Jesus enables an ever deepening transformation of consciousness <laughs> as we entrust ourselves to his leading and discover ourselves more consciously on the inside of divine life, able to imagine our growth and maturation in these terms. And this suggests that there is a particular gift that our world community for Christian meditation is called to receive, a particular vocation we're called to be true to. And to explore what this looks like more fully will be our task tomorrow.